0: Hello, my name's Justin LeCleur, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about a Cannes Film Festival darling, and that's... Jane Campion were you familiar with her work before doing this podcast? I'd Will? seen a couple
1: of her movies over the years as you do. <clears throat> she hasn't released that many. She just made the sort of movies like you know the piano that you kind of see over the years if you're interested in movies
0: Yeah, she's a filmmaker that was always on the outskirts and wasn't something that I would actively go and see.
1: Could it perhaps be because we're guys? white guys
0: or just guys Yeah, like it hasn't been like appointment viewing like looking back, Her previous films were, like, a romantic, kind of, very mannered biopic, Bright Star, that came out. Mm -hmm. She did Top of the Lake recently as a TV series. But her real hits were, like, The Piano and An Angel at My Table.
1: And particularly The Piano, which was a genuine cultural phenomenon at the time it came out. Mm-hmm.
0: Like, there's still jokes you can find on, like, magazines and shit about that defining what art cinema is. Mm-hmm. So Jane Campion grew up in a family of artists. Her parents worked for the theater. Um, when she went to school, she actually wanted to get away from all that. And she studied anthropology because she wanted nothing to do with artists or anything like that because <laughs> it had been part of her life so much. And then suddenly she got interested in storytelling through what she was studying, and she ended up in film school, where she made a bunch of award-winning shorts. And her first feature film, Sweetie, was already a bit of a sensation in her uh, native New Zealand, which is where she grew up.
1: And then An Angel at My Table from 1990, The Real International Breakthrough. But
0: before we get into that... We're going to do something a little bit different on The Important Cinema Club, which is we're going to advertise for our Patreon at the beginning of the episode. This is most unorthodox. <laughs> so this week we talked about old boy and the way that <laughs> our moral tastes are evolving. Talk about a shift. <laughs> Angel on my table, old boy. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'll put some music underneath so people will be able to skip it if they've already subscribed to the Patreon. But if you have it, $5 a month. Check it out now. Let's you keep get a our, new
1: episode every week. Keep a roof over our head. <laughs> So Jane Campion. So I I mean, maybe just uh, leading into this, a couple of thoughts on Jane Campion and her place in the uh, art house ecosystem. Uh, for a long time, I think maybe until Sofia Coppola, Jane Campion was the person you'd think of when you thought female film director. Mm. And also she was like, she was like the female film director who got movies in the Cannes Film Festival competition. The only one regularly. I don't know, may- maybe Agnes Varda did every now and then. But, like, you remember that omnibus film Chacun Sans Cinema from 2007? I think she's the only female director a part of that.
0: Yeah, because we live in a sexist world, and that's crazy. So,
1: I mean, I kind of went into this week, not having seen a Jane Campion movie in a really long time, wondering why was she the female director who entered that kind of rarefied space in the arthouse ecosystem? Is, like, how feminist are her films? Is she appealing in some way to, like... Male uh, festival programmers, I, I wasn't quite sure why. and I guess I was surprised this week finding that I think her films are deeply female.
0: Yes, they're you know. actually dealing with very complex themes mm-hmm. in a way that you wouldn't expect.
1: They are about ordinary women and mm-hmm. and experiences that are common to women and I and you know, issues that are relevant to women. and all, and oftentimes her female protagonists are frankly difficult. Mm-hmm. They're spiky, they can be opaque. So I've been thinking a lot lately because uh, it's been pointed out to me, and I guess I always sort of knew it, but I hadn't really. I I must shamefacedly admit I haven't always thought about it. That the default perspective is male.
0: Yeah, it always is. Uh,
1: And of course, we we all know that. But when you actually start watching stuff and thinking about it consciously, it becomes embarrassingly apparent. And I think watching these movies this week, they are films in which the default perspective is female.
0: There's a weird example of that in television, where the creator of Bojack Horseman was placing background characters of just no name extras, and he kept calling all the characters "him" or move him over there. Mm-hmm. And one of the animators was like, "Why do you assume he's a man?" Mm-hmm. And it's just you just assume if some no gender is given, that person is a man because that has been the ruling class forever. And just,
1: but just think about like every movie yeah think about like every movie you love
0: because it's all made by men so yeah. that's the perspective they're going to give on yeah it.
1: So anyway, it's great that I finally acknowledged that, um, you know, the default perspective. It's, it's, it's great that I finally have become woke.
0: There's like a heavenly light behind your head
1: now. Yeah. So
0: let us continue. My misogyny
1: has been cured. Us <laughs> two white
0: men <laughs> <laughs> to speak about this uh, very feminine filmmaker. Yeah,
1: but so An Angel at My Table, uh, what's this film about?
0: This film is about a famous New Zealand author, Janet Frame, and the journey she took through her life to get published and stuff like that. And most specifically, the way that she was kind of quarreled into mental institutions
1: and treated as a schizophrenic. She was institutionalized for eight years, misdiagnosed, underwent uh, literally hundreds of electroshock therapy sessions, and I believe was on the fast track to a lobotomy until she was finally freed from the institution. And she apparently in real life just suffer- suffered from some depression and was not actually schizophrenic.
0: And the film makes a good point of never showing her as you would think of the textbook schizophrenic to the point that you're a little bit
1: confused. Like, why are they putting her in a mental asylum for so long? But she was somebody who was always a somewhat awkward and withdrawn child. Um, And perhaps remained somewhat awkward and withdrawn for her whole life.
0: This is a film that I found a little bit surprising because I came to it late in all the movies that I marathon of Jane Campion. And what I discovered was not the visual kind of opulence of films like In the Cut or um, Holy Smoke, but a more kind of controlled... Uh, storytelling and
1: not as kind of wildly experimental with mm-hmm. some of those later ones like yeah a movie like holy smoke has a lot of like kind of off the wall comedy and it. in the cut you know very
0: even the very piano stylish. has like a lot of visual punnery mm-hmm. and there's even like a little bit of animation and angel at my table is really like a take a step back and let the story play specifically because it's you know, covering a long period of this person's life to the point that there's three different actresses who play her.
1: It was also originally conceived as a television miniseries, three episodes based on her three autobiographies covering her girlhood, her time in the mental institution, and beyond that. So there is something about it that is, I guess scaled to the small screen at least visually it, it looks good mm-hmm. i mean it really, you never feel cramped by like a budget or anything like that No, but i mean compared to some of her later films it doesn't push anything it doesn't really underline anything it's it's very i guess precise in its storytelling if, if it seems a little more visually and stylistically static than some of her later ones it's a it's a movie that kind of lets the material speak for itself
0: I have to compare it to Bright Star, which he made in the 2000s, which is that kind of mannered storytelling. They both share the same thing, like the idea that dramatic events like deaths or stuff like that will often happen off screen. Mm -hmm. Like it will not dig into like, oh, I just want to let this moment play of how important it is. It'll just very quietly. And it's very elliptical at times. Exactly. And, you know, you could associate that with television, but you could also associate it with a level of control, even at this time, Her second feature film it is a long film which makes sense that it would be three episodes being like two and a half hours yeah
1: yeah there's a, a real clarity to the storytelling um and there's a not as much editorializing i think like directorial editorializing as there is in something like holy smoke it's very um uh, it's very kind of simple and clear-eyed and it's very much about what it's about. Mm-hmm. It's the story of this woman's life, and it's about the performances that the three actresses give. And it puts a lot of faith in that story itself being engrossing and powerful. Mm-hmm. And also in it's a depiction of the mental institution in which she's interned. You can imagine Campion in one of her later movies making that mental institution very, Terry Gilliamish? Yeah, very, very Terry <laughs> Gilliamish. Um but but here it's shot very objectively
0: Mm -hmm. like the mental asylum while being a terrible place it's like oh well this is what it could be. Like, Mm. you can imagine that she would be stuck in this awful situation for as long as
1: she was, which was way too long. Mm. It's kind of amazing somebody being trapped there for eight years and emerging from it and becoming, you know, one of New Zealand's most celebrated authors. Uh,
0: Happening while she was in the mental institution, her book was published. And as the film seems to show us, almost was lobotomized until she won an award. But my God, like, think of the
1: PTSD you would suffer being...
0: (laughs) I would just lay in bed... (laughs) until they probably put me in another mental institution. Yeah, I don't know. Well, she even says in the movie that like she doesn't know how it's going to feel now that someone is not taking care of her, Mm -hmm. which is going to be difficult, but she was able to go through that. I'm not familiar Mm -hmm. with that author's life. All I can get is from the movie, Mm -hmm. but... It seems like she lived the long and fruitful one dying in like the late 90s, early 2000s. 2004,
1: she died. There you yeah. go. So she lived to see this film.
0: And because this was the last one that I watched in my marathon of Jane Campion film, man, fun for days. <laughs> uh, I was trying to kind of impose the themes that became prevalent in stuff like the piano, holy smoke and in the cut, where those are very clearly about control and the way that control is kind of uh, enforced on people. Mm -hmm. And even in Angel at My Table the protagonist is a pawn in everybody's game. The way that she's put in the asylum Mm -hmm. is like she has no control for herself or agency. And the only agency that she can get is through her writing.
1: Yeah well Campion is clearly very interested in all of her movies about like the the power of of the gender dynamic or the exchange of power in, in the gender binary you know.
0: And that's what really struck me when I watched The Piano this week I had never seen it before so this was the first time for me and watching it this is a film that won all the awards it won the uh, Palm d'Or at Cannes or did it it had to split it with um, Farewell with my, my Concubine, concubine. yeah, yeah. Uh, sexist, maybe it's like I don't know if we can give a woman a whole Palm Door.
1: Yeah, well I don't know who knows what was going on in the in the jury room, but she is the only female director to have a Palm Door. That's insane. Yeah,
0: <laughs> not even a full one. Like, yeah, come on. <laughs> uh, and it's also a film that like Holly Hunter won an Academy Award for. Uh, of, so
1: did Annie Anna Paquin. That's insane that to me when I age read that. At eleven,
0: yeah, uh, who plays probably
1: the most screechy child in cinema history? I think she's pretty incredible, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, while well, children are screechy, they are.
0: That's mm-hmm. what I mean. Is yeah. that like children are unlikable and they're self-involved, just like the character that Holly Hunter plays in this film? For people that haven't seen The Piano, it's Holly Hunter plays a mute woman who, with her daughter, is shipped off. Uh, By her father to New Zealand, which is currently being colonized by uh, the likes of Sam Neill. Mm -hmm. A well-to-do settler who is a little bit shocked and unsure what to do with Holly Hunter, because while she is mute, she is very uh, self-possessed in the sense that she knows what she wants, and that's principally expressing herself through her piano playing. Yeah,
1: and she's been uh, married off to Sam Neill by her father, although she has uh, a child that she had out of wedlock some Mm -hmm. years before. And Sam Neill, you know, this very well-to-do guy— says he has no room in his house for the piano that she brought which was her mother's piano i think mm-hmm. um and so he makes her leave the piano on the beach and so so immediately the piano is her one and only mode of communication aside from sign language and he doesn't want that you know he doesn't and, value that
0: and so what she ends up doing is starting a relationship with a hunky harvey
1: Keitel, hot bod <laughs>
0: <laughs> who is currently playing a kind of translator to the um native New Zealanders who we see very literally are being um robbed of their land for things like blankets.
1: But he's Harvey Keitel is a white man who has sort of affected the native lifestyle.
0: Yeah. So he tattooed himself. He's still living in a house. He doesn't live with Sam. He lives exterior to them. But he is literate And he's involved with some and he kind of speaks their language a little bit. So he
1: buys the piano from Sam Neill off the beach as kind of a uh, roundabout way to seduce Holly Hunter. And she can come over and he gives her he lets her play a certain number of keys on the piano and if she'll, for example, um, lift her dress a little bit or expose a little bit of skin or something like that.
0: So it was impossible for me to watch the piano without viewing it through the prism of this being incredibly popular. Mm -hmm. So every moment that would play out, there would be like cogs and levers in my head going like, okay, what did people connect with that this would be like such a huge hit? Because it's a difficult film, I have to say. And Uh... I mean... The only way you could really view it is if you kind of brush some stuff away. If you see the poster of the piano, it's Harvey Keitel very like seductively grabbing Holly Hunter and kissing her on the neck. That's crazy to me after watching the movie. By the way, how'd
1: you like that scene with Harvey Keitel naked as the as the camera kind of lovingly uh, objectifies his um, Tommy Wiseau-ish body? <laughs> Kind of lingers lingers on his his perfectly sculpted, middle-aged ass.
0: This is a movie that uh, really highlights Jane Campion's obsession. And she said this with herself about the complexity of desire. Mm -hmm. In the sense that Harvey Keitel, to my eyes, was never a romantic figure. Because right from the get-go, he forced Holly Hunter to do what he wanted to do. And that like showing up naked is just kind of sexual blackmail. And then finally, when he discovered that she wouldn't just, like, fall in bed with him, he acted like a sullen child and was like, Oh, well, you know, go on your way. I don't
1: want you if you're not going to love me. Now, meanwhile, in the other corner, you have Sam Neal. Playing the ultimate nice guy. Yeah, yeah I was about <laughs> to say, actually. Very nice guy. All he wants is for, for her to show him a little bit of affection. Can't you
0: just see how nice he is and all yeah. the stuff that he's doing? Why won't you just return that affection? And I
1: mean, really, like, like c- c- come on. W- is it really that bad that he didn't bring that piano back to his house? <laughs>
0: Look, he's got a lot of work to do, right? Yeah. You know, he's listening to her. He wants uh, a little bit of affection. That's not too much
1: to ask. Now, so I got to say, when I saw this movie when I was 18, I found Sam Neil a more sympathetic character than I do now.
0: Kind of pathetic, right? Because to a a certain point, he is portrayed as like trying to do the nice thing and holly hunter the entire time is rebuffing him yeah. and being like i'm not interested at any point point." and
1: so imagine 18 year old me not 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 a nice guy you know, a nice guy <laughs> perhaps um per- perhaps not a, not as uh, enlightened as i am now you tip your fedora <laughs> to ladies that would walk by and be
0: like good day
1: but kind of thinking you know around the t- around the time when sam neil pulls out his axe and starts cutting off cutting off her fingers being like well, you know that was a bad thing to do, but I can kind of see his point of view. And <laughs> that... and look at Harvey Keitel, what a, what a huge dick, you know, sexually blackmailing her, like mm-hmm. basically a rapist or close to it. Even though that in the film Sam Neill also tries to rape her. <laughs> y- yeah, yeah. Uh, but but who does Holly Hunter fall in love with? Uh, it's um you know hunky Harvey Keitel.
0: But what's funny about that situation is that she still does approach Sam Neill and starts to begin kind of like sexual touching. And what ends up happening is that she wants to be in control. Mm -hmm. And the second that Sam Neill wants to kind of act himself, that's when she pulls back and she wants Mm -hmm. nothing to do with that. And that's why at the same time, Harvey Keitel, she becomes interested in him when he's not interested in her, or at least that's the act that he's putting on.
1: Now, my frustrated reaction to this movie as a teenager I think I was not alone in that reaction because when this movie came out, I believe it was pretty divisive. And I believe a lot of the reactions were along gendered lines. Mm -hmm. Um, You think
0: that the men were like, why? Why is she so difficult? Why won't you
1: just go with Sam Neill? I mean, frankly, yes. Mm -hmm. And also, she is as a character difficult. Yeah, she is. I mean, this is a selfish like. Well, this is a two hour movie that gives you you know three characters four if you count Anna Paquin mm. but three main characters and two of them are bad guys or you know complicated guys mm. and bad guys <laughs> yeah and the protagonist the point of identification is a mute woman who um knows what she wants <laughs> and she wants to go do, in that do, direction does she know what she wants all well, all the time
0: not all the time but yeah. she is like a straight arrow that yeah. she's going to go towards the goal that she has in mind at that point i but think she's
1: hard to read at times it, it,
0: it, she is and and holly hunter never plays her yeah. like big
1: and she's not she's not none of these are characters you want to project yourself onto
0: i think that anna paquin is a very important kind of piece in the storytelling of this film mm-hmm. Because without her, uh, Holly Hunter would seem more more of an anti-hero, I guess. Like, yeah. you would always be
1: rooting for well, her. Yeah, and Anna Paquin is also kind of like her translator to the audience, in a way. And She's
0: Anna Paquin, as the movie goes along, also sees differently than Holly Hunter does, creating a kind of sympathy for Sam Neill mm-hmm. instead of Harvey Keitel. And because all of these things are kind of like smashing together, it creates something very difficult mm-hmm. to... Find sympathy with, because as the movie's wrapping up, you're f- trying to find like, well, what is the right way to go? Mm-hmm. Like, what is the good ending mm-hmm. that will leave the viewer go, oh yes, that's right. Especially when you view it again through the prism of this was a massive hit and everybody was talking about it. Mm-hmm. Like, were they happy? It was the way that it ended up. I don't know. Yeah, and uh... that's that's really interesting to kind of you know chew on when you watch it, especially when I mean more spoilers. The film ends with. Holly Hunter's uh, attempted suicide, that she throws herself in the water with her piano. And then in the final moments, she changes her mind and she goes out of the water, lives with Harvey Keitel, happily ever after. She starts to learn to speak again. Jane Campion a few years ago said, oh, no, we shot her dying in the water, which honestly, that makes the most sense with the movie that we saw.
1: <laughs> but I mean, I would also just just add too, uh, in terms of how difficult the film is. I mean, it's an exquisitely beautiful film, but. This is a very unpleasant environment to be Mm. immersed in for two hours. It's this gray, desolate, rainy and muddy Mm. uh, New Zealand coast.
0: Yeah. And unlike An Angel at My Table, Jane Campion in this film is visually playing with stuff Mm. like she's creating like very beautiful tableaus creating visual puns like, oh, uh, Sam Neill has a photo of Holly Hunter in his pocket. Mm-hmm. Get it? And you see it from the POV of the pocket? <laughs> he has her in her pocket? This right. was the first uh, iteration of, well, Jane Campion makes very complex films... They're also suddenly obvious in different ways. (laughs) Like the scene where uh, Sam Neill is trading land with the native New Zealanders for blankets. It's like, ah, now we get it.
1: But why was this movie so popular? Perhaps it has to do with the fact that it is about the complicated nature Mm. of desire and the fact that it it is a difficult female protagonist. Mm -hmm. So that must have seemed very refreshing. Mm -hmm.
0: And it was probably
1: the fact that, unfortunately,
0: looking back, was distributed...
1: By Miramax Films. Well, you know, uh, Harvey at the time did <laughs> did have uh, a, a very savvy sense of how to market this kind of thing.
0: And, like, they pushed it hard on audiences, even though the film illustrated all the bad behavior that Harvey Weinstein did himself.
1: We're coming out strongly anti-Harvey Weinstein on the Important Cinema Club podcast. You heard it here first.
0: And I also watched Holy Smoke, which is... Essentially the sequel to The Piano, because it's dealing with all the same themes, except in a much more obvious way. And even Harvey Cartel is back.
1: That was uh, one of those movies I might have seen when I was younger, looking for celebrity skin.
0: Uh, and you <laughs> found some, didn't you? I
1: think I might have. Uh, Another embarrassing admission of, <laughs> of, a young, of a young Will.
0: So like I said, I'm not going to talk too much about this film, but it's like The Piano much more goofy, and then more serious, and again, like a little bit more direct- In that... Didactic. It's doing the same stuff, which is about, like, a man that's in control taking a woman, in this case, a person that has fallen under the thrall of a cult, if you will, in India, and trying to kind of knock it out of her, but at the same time falling in love with her and the power dynamics changing from, like, scene to scene.
1: Well, in the movie Harvey Keitel, he's this cult deprogrammer who's also a very macho Mm -hmm. guy who's very used to dominating women sexually. And then Kate Winslet realizes that she can pull a power play on him by coming on to him sexually and then after it's over kind of being very flippant towards him and being like oh it wasn't anything yeah using that to triumph over him and
0: even then it gets more complicated after that because Kate Winslet is not sure how to feel about Harvey Keitel even though he's a pathetic man who at one point punches her in the face
1: but it kind of seems a little easier what it's trying to accomplish than what the piano is
0: it's complex in the sense that oh i can't believe that this is happening but it's so much more of a straight line the yeah. way that it gets there
1: but the two central performances i think are pretty amazing
0: oh yeah they're fantastic and, and like
1: very very naked not mm-hmm. not just physically but also just like these two actors just kind of throw themselves into these harvey models. Keitel
0: putting a little bit of makeup on and putting a dress for the uh last part of the movie yeah yeah but this was the film that kind of sour Jane Campion's, I don't want to say brand, but film career. And because she's a woman, if she gets one film that's not
1: received very well, movie jail for you. Well, uh, though, a few years after this, she did make uh, a little movie that we both saw this week called In the Cut. Now, this is one that's held in a weird place. I've been seeing some revisionist reappraisals of it lately. It was quite poorly received at the time. I think when it came out, a lot of the focus was on, oh, this is Meg Ryan trying to do do a weighty role and uh, she's naked in it. Mm. And also, like, this was around the time Meg Ryan was getting a lot of Botox, I hate to say it, and that, I think, colored a lot of the media about her at the time.
0: And I think the people also felt that Jane Campion sold out in a way because, like, oh, she's just making an erotic thriller, which were very popular, slick ones that were coming around like the late 90s, early 2000s. This is on the
1: very tail end of the erotic thriller genre. In fact, I believe I have in my notes here a feminist spin on the erotic thriller genre.
0: And what's fascinating about In the Cut is that it's everything that Jane Campion has done up to that point magnified to like a thousand whether it be the theme she's dealing with or the visual craziness that's going on
1: this movie stars meg ryan as a new york english teacher uh, who gets entangled in a murder mystery because some of the remains of a murder victim are found outside of her apartment there's a serial killer going around literally disemboweling women and she, a
0: theme that appears multiple times, the Bluebeard analogy <laughs> that is also apparent in the piano.
1: And she falls in a certain kind of psychosexual relationship with Mark Ruffalo, the alpha male who's leading the, the police investigation and who she suspects may be the killer. She shouldn't be in a relationship with him because he's foul moused and doesn't have
0: good political opinions, but she can't stay away.
1: So I think I didn't particularly like this movie. I liked it. Well, there are things about it that I do like though. I it's a movie where I kind of like a lot of what's happening in it, and yet I think as as an as a thriller, it's DOA.
0: No, yeah. It, um, I don't think it works on any level like who is the killer? I yeah. can't figure out even when it wraps up and it reveals who's been doing this, it's like, okay. And it's done in such a perfunctory way yeah. as well.
1: And uh, stylistically, I think the movie's almost indigestible.
0: It is hideous like it's all yellows and she makes a decision to shoot most of it handheld with the focus
1: shifting throughout shots and oftentimes the cinematography like the camera is like hiding behind things so it's as if we're eavesdropping on all these scenes which is easier hearing about it than it is to actually experience
0: but i think that as a deconstruction of the genre there is weight in saying that because it is taking tropes that we usually associate with something as simple as like basic instinct or fatal attraction, and just showing that ugly underside of it. Well, it's
1: interesting that the man, in this case, Mark Ruffalo, is the femme fatale. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that Meg Ryan and her half-sister, Jennifer Jason Lee, are kind of normal sexual beings. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing, I mean, there's nothing particularly extraordinary about, about their sexuality, except that they have... A sexuality, mm-hmm. which I probably isn't all that. like in movies, sex is a rather more momentous occasion oftentimes. When well, it's something happens. that you build up to and yeah. is the climactic event like, oh my God, finally we yeah. had sex. You don't see people with sort of like normal, healthy sexual appetites. and the nature of her relationship with Mark Ruffalo, the fact that he's this crude and terrible man, and yet he clearly is really good at sex, their relationship, what makes it work, it's sort of elliptical and yet we get it somehow mm-hmm. we get we get well, why everyone has
0: had her. that experience or seen that friend where you go like, why are you dating this person? Yeah, they are terrible. They treat you like shit. What could you find attractive about them? Yeah, but the relationship persists.
1: Yeah, so that's really interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: And that's something that movies rarely tackle because the issue is, well, the audience is not going to buy it. Mm -hmm. Like, why would they continue in a relationship with this person? And I mean,
1: frankly, when this movie came out, it was very poorly received. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people said it's the movie's ludicrous.
0: And it's also, like we talked about the piano, a question of where do your sympathy lie? Mm -hmm. Because it's not going to lie with Mark Ruffalo because he's a bit of a jerk. And you would assume they lie with Meg Ryan, but why is she getting involved in these situations? Why is she making these decisions? And it's not even on the level of like, a slasher film where someone makes a decision to go get killed. It's more complicated than that.
1: But you can also kind of see why she would get with Ruffalo when you see her ex-boyfriend, mm-hmm. uh, Kevin Bacon. A uh, actor who wants to be a doctor who carries a small dog around. But like a much more normal quote-unquote guy who is also literally stalking her now and mm-hmm. like is hateful and angry at her that she broke up with him. You know, another kind of nice guy. <laughs> yeah. So you can kind of see why, why after an experience with a guy like that, she would go with... Mark Ruffalo, who has the courage of his horrible convictions.
0: Yeah, he speaks his mind, even if those opinions are awful. Yeah. And they never pull away from that either. There's never really a scene where Mark Ruffalo is like, you know, I am really a good guy. And I just don't know how to express myself. So I
1: know maybe I'm kind of selling myself on this movie now. I'll just say that I found it a bit of an ordeal to watch. And yet it was it was very interesting. When I say
0: that I like it, I I do enjoy it on one level, but it's not something I'm like all smiles and laughs laughs watching, except for a really goofy flashback. That happens involving a couple skating. I didn't get that at all. No, me neither. Unless you take it literally and the character is being completely immobilized by having her arms and legs cut off. Right. Which is a very thuddingly obvious Mm -hmm. analogy, but maybe that's what it is. Mm -hmm. So after in the cut, Jane Campion never had anything of the piano scale. Mm -hmm. Like... If
1: you look at her filmography, she hasn't really made that many movies considering how long she's been working. But I would say Top of the Lake on TV was uh, a minor comeback. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, Bright Star was like a slight art house hit,
0: and very well received. I watched it. It is what it is. Like, it's very controlled. It's like Jane Campion. Mm-hmm. seemingly playing it safe to prove that like, you know, I don't have to be as opulent as I was in the cut. I could just make mannered films as well.
1: Well, you know what? I remember seeing it, liking it. I mm-hmm. uh, can't remember much about it, mm-hmm. but you know, top of the lake is, is a show that a lot of people have seen. And a lot of people have talked, I mean, it's the trajectory of a lot of kind of art house filmmakers where you know, the market for that kind of film is drying up. And so they migrate to television.
0: And if Amazon is not paying for it, and they're not
1: anymore, because they said they would only do blockbusters from now on. Well, uh, fortunately, uh, a rainy day in New York is still coming out. (laughs) Baby,
0: it's (laughs) difficult for Jane Campion to make feature films, I feel. Mm -hmm. So TV is a good place, especially that it's obvious uh, something like Top of the Lake, or the sequel to that, Top of the Lake, China Girl, mm-hmm. uh, she seemingly had a lot of control over. It's six episodes. She directed everyone. So she does have that opportunity to have an autorial impact mm-hmm. on, you know, the art that she's making, which is good. Great. TV is the future. One day you're going to have to start watching it, Will. You're going to fight it tooth and nail.
1: Look, I, I like TV.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah, cheers. Uh, the Being the Frank show. <laughs> <laughs> So, as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Question, comment, suggestion. We want them all. And we'll probably read them on air. So, this week, we have a letter from Brandon Lim, and it goes, What would Jackie Chan do? Justin will. I've been eagerly awaiting your Jackie Chan Spectacular 100th Episode Special, and wow, did you guys deliver. I wanted to write you guys a letter and leave an iTunes review like you're always asking your audience to do with increasing desperation. (laughs) Remember, guys, write us an iTunes review. But I'm finding it challenging to do so as I keep hearing Justin's jovial sounding voice with each word I type, and it's throwing my train of thought askew. Maybe you could switch things up and have Will read it. His voice seems easier to block out of my head for some reason. Uh, Will? Sure, I'll continue. It's all yours.
1: All right. Here I am. One thing from your episode that resonated with me a lot.
0: (laughs) I like your voice as jovial (laughs) as mine.
1: (laughs) Was Hollywood's tendency to portray Jackie Chan as the other during the late 90s and early 2000s, When his international stardom was so great that not even america could ignore the chance to capitalize on him growing up half chinese in the 80s a lot of kids at school would make fun of the other asian kids in my classes but would tend to leave me exempt i think because of my general appearance of whiteness i never really had the courage to stand up to any of these racist bullies which i always felt guilty about but a big part of me learning to accept and take more pride in my chinese heritage was through watching old kung fu movies with my dad He used to show me old VHS tapes and laser discs of Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan, and in turn, I'd invite friends to come over after school to watch them too. I think part of me felt that if other kids could only see how cool and talented Chinese people actually were, they'd be less likely to make fun of them. Films like Drunken Master 2, Project A, and Police Story were in steady rotation, and much like Will described, Jackie almost seemed like some kind of urban myth or folk hero capable of superhuman feats. We would all point at walls, fences, and random parts of buildings and theorize whether or not Jackie Chan could jump off <laughs> it. And of course, the answer was always yes. I also had conversations like <laughs> Did this. You? Yeah. When he started to break into the American mainstream in the mid-90s, I remembered how exciting it was to see him finally get his dues in the West, despite the fact that he was already in his 40s. Seeing old favorites of his pop up on video rental shelves was very exciting, but also felt a bit awkward revisiting these films with weird English voice dubs and alternate titles.
0: Well, Jackie Chan did like to dub his own voice a lot. That's true. And it sounded not good.
1: It sounded you know, like Jackie Chan dubbing his voice in yeah. English. When Rush Hour first came out, I remember being so pumped for this film that it was easy to look past the subpar fight choreography and action set pieces that were well below the standards of Hong Kong films decades before. This was also probably the first time Western audiences had been exposed to an Asian male in the lead role since Bruce Lee in Enter the Dragon. And of course, Rush Hour doesn't miss a chance to incorporate every Chinese stereotype in the book. His next string of movies in the U.S. were, needless to say, supremely disappointing. While fans of his previous work longed for the days he might return to form, it became increasingly clear that American directors simply didn't know how to capture the magic that is Jackie Chan. Also, one anecdote from I Am Jackie Chan, that's his autobiography. His first autobiography. I'm surprised you neglected to mention was his story he told about being a stuntman extra on the set of Enter the Dragon. Apparently, Bruce Lee hit him square in the head with with a pair of nunchucks during filming, and Bruce waited for the scene to finish before running over to him to see if he was okay. Jackie also claims Bruce took him out bowling that night. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I always appreciated the focus on Asian and Hong Kong cinema you guys show so much reverence for. Your Samo Hung and Category 3 episodes were definitely favorites. Category 3 being a Patreon one. Also, to make this extra creepy, I'm currently writing this as Justin prepares to introduce Don't Panic at the Royal, and Will sits in quiet anticipation (laughs) for the screening to start. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I was there. Creepy. In terms of questions or suggestions, I was scratching my head thinking about a subject to suggest to you guys for future episodes when I noticed that, that the American Genre Film Archive just recently announced a deal with Shaw Brothers... ...to release theatrical cuts of 30 newly restored Shaw classics. I'm sure this is relevant to your interests, so crossing my fingers that that some of these will get a chance to screen here in Toronto... ...and that you guys will cover some of them. Inframan laser blast screening, perhaps? I think so. Yeah, Yeah, probably. I
0: think there's an Inframan print floating around. And when it comes to Shaw Brothers films... That's something that I feel like we couldn't just do a Shaw Brothers episode. We would have to do, like, a director or even a star or something like that. I think we could
1: do a Shaw Brothers episode if we did, like... Like we could do Thirty Six Chambers, Shaolin, mm-hmm. the Inframan, like Oily Maniac, and maybe one other thing, and then but then we could return to the topic later. Yeah, because there's and no Chang
0: Che in that. And yeah, that's very it. important. We can do a
1: Chang Chai episode. We can do all sorts of things.
0: There's just so much because the idea of Shaw Brothers, is, it's like doing
1: a Warner Brothers episode. Yeah,
0: is that people believe that because its style is very formulaic in the way that it's presented, mm-hmm. people see it like, oh, they're all the same, but they're really not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: P.S. Here's a photo of me and Jackie Chan during the time he was here for the Q&A he did during TIFF 2012. We were there. Yeah, we were. I remember the event selling out pretty fast and trying to find tickets on Craigslist to surprise my dad with, but was only able to track down one for myself. A couple days after the event, I remember getting a call from my dad that said, Brandon, Jackie Chan is here having dinner at the restaurant. My family owns a Thai restaurant called Mengrai." It was my night off from work, but I dropped what I was doing and took a cab to try to catch him. I realized I didn't have anything for him to sign, so I stopped at Sonic Boom and grabbed the DVD of Drunken Master. (laughs) By the time I got to the restaurant, he was literally out the door and ready to go, but we convinced his management to get him to come back and take a group photo with our staff. He begrudgingly came back inside. From the midst of the food coma, he seemed to be in, threw on that signature Jackie smile, and put his arm around me for one photo. After that, he was out the door again before I had a chance to even ask him to sign the DVD. That's my Jackie Chan story. Thanks for listening. And here's, the, and, and here's the photo. It's yeah. really
0: cute. Uh, maybe Jackie Chan is a good man.
1: Well, I mean, I think uh, Jackie Chan is a man like all of us. He's <laughs> complicated. He has his good sides and his bad sides. He does seem to be really nice to his fans.
0: Thank you very much for your letter, Brandon. And thank you very much for coming to Laser Blast as well. Yeah. Don't panic. Fun time.
1: If you folks are ever in Toronto, by the way, listeners, be sure to come to Toronto during a time when uh, Justin and Peter are doing a Laser Blast Film Society screening.
0: So that's every month. So just check your local listings. You'll probably see me there, too. <laughs> (laughs) But me and Will do not
1: hang out. No, we we don't, uh, you know, we don't speak.
0: We have, um, our lawyers have decided that we only have so many hours (laughs) that we're allowed to speak together a month. So another quick question uh, from Andrew Barr. He goes, Hey guys. Just listening to your top 10 list and was wondering how many of the films on your list were things you actually liked and how many were things you thought were important films that make you sound like you know what you're talking about. Is he talking about me? Just comparing my list to yours, I feel like while I do watch documentaries and the occasional important films, I end up filling my list with goofy junk. I'd like to point out that Andrew Barr, who's a friend of ours, had impossible horror on his top 10 list. I'm assuming the difference comes from my not having to prove that I know what I'm talking about when it comes to film. But is it possible I'm just an uncultured
1: oaf? Uh, perhaps you just have a low opinion of your own taste.
0: Anyway, thanks for the earnest-centric episode. It was quite entertaining. Your pal, Andrew. We talked about this a little bit on the previous episode, that top ten lists at their base. When you release them online for people to see... Is only to make you look smart. Well,
1: there definitely is a performative quality mm. top 10 list. But at the same time, like I, I resent the bad faith um, <laughs> assumption. All I can tell you is why not see the movies on my list? See if you agree. But I, I don't know. Like I don't I don't think I I genuinely tried not to overthink the list this. Mm-hmm. Year.
0: You just went through it. See if you could do 10. And you're like, you're good. Yeah. Even though that while I was writing a list out for the website, one of them actually got knocked back because you had seen Phantom Thread before we did the episode. Well,
1: yeah, my list on David Davidson's website mm. uh, has uh, Logan Lucky at number 10. Yeah, Logan Lucky, fun film. Fun film. Steven Soderbergh's... You know, sorry, Phantom Thread got on the list, knocked it off. Steven Soderbergh goes and clicks
0: unsubscribe to the Important Cinema Club. <laughs> so next week, we're doing a director. I actually wanted to do when uh the rural cinema was doing a retrospective of him, but... There was too much stuff that came up because we reached 100 episodes at the end of 2017. Mm -hmm. And that's our man, P.T. Anderson. Not to be confused with the director of Alien vs. Predator, (laughs) Paul W.S. Anderson. Mm -hmm. This is another filmmaker that I believe was probably big when you were a teenager. Uh, Yeah, yeah. And has evolved into something interesting. From Boogie Nights and Magnolia to, you know, The Phantom Thread, The Master. There's
1: such a stark difference between both of those while still kind of holding on to the same themes. There's a line, there's a continuity mm-hmm. in the work, and yet there is a, a very clear evolution. And I think, uh, you know, guys like us, we look at them and we say, you're our hope for the future.
0: <laughs> is there perhaps <laughs> a phantom thread connecting them all?
1: <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs>
0: all right, so that's what we're going to be talking about next week.
1: Until then, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Justin, you ever, uh, uh, seen a movie and said, Boy, that was two hours of my life, I'll never get back. Never. Wouldn't you love to have a little bit of revenge on the fat cats in Tinseltown who, uh, took your money?
0: Yeah, especially that I am a filmmaker as well, and I appreciate cinema, so I want to punish the people who make bad films. So,
1: I bet you're a card-carrying member of the Golden Raspberry Association. Of course
0: uh, I am. Also known as the Razzies. And by that, I mean I give them no quarter and do not discuss them at all. Good night, Will. No, well, they so
1: released their list today. They, they released their no, their nominations, and, uh, you know, it was it was as bad as it always is. You know, we, we said we were going to talk about the Razzies a bit. Um, you know, I, I wrote two tweets about the Razzies today. Uh, you forced yourself. Well, I like, I could have said more, but I think people take the bait too much, yeah. you know, because they are meaningless, they are obviously just this group of kind of like L.A. fame whores. Even when you
0: <laughs> pitched it to me, you were like, we could talk about this. I know. Just don't
1: look, Just Justin. Yeah, but, you know, it, it's got Paul Anka's guarantee. Just <laughs> yeah. don't look. But I mean, they're, I guess they're kind of interesting because they represent a certain um, point of view for like what is bad. Like do they, they at well, this point in time but the, i mean they clearly i don't think they see the movies mm-hmm. because you look at the the lists of who are the best actor best actress nominees and
0: uh, uh, worst actress nominee oh yeah
1: excuse me worst actor and like the worst actor nominees are things like dakota johnson in 50 shades darker i mean she's not the worst like she's not the, or or you know jennifer lawrence in mother and that <sighs> and and listen first of all i think mother's a good movie mm-hmm. secondly even if you think it's a bad movie it's not her fault. Like, she's good. at Like, what's wrong with her in that movie? So the reason she's nominated is because, well, she's a famous actress who's had a few flops lately. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's what's bad about her.
0: Now, the Razzies are weird in this day and age because you would think they would be more relevant than ever because we live in a culture that is there to make fun of stuff. Yeah. Like, that is what Twitter is. That is what social media exists to do. But they may also be a relic. Because it moves too fast now.
1: (laughs) Well, their targets are so out of touch. Mm -hmm. They have that category, um, worst remake, ripoff, or sequel. And that seems like such a relic of every movie. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's like that's such a relic of like the early 90s when Mm -hmm. people were like, oh, look at all these sequels that are coming out. Like it was a much more novel complaint at the time. Now, you look at the, the five nominated movies and like they're a hack organization anyway, but if they wanted to be a hack organization with some, aspiration of relevancy maybe one of their worst picture nominees would be wonder wheel Mm -hmm. because i think that's that movie probably fucking says more about what's wrong with hollywood than baywatch does yeah but
0: they're never gonna do that they're gonna pick like the big bloated blockbusters that were popular and don't mean anything yeah
1: because that's easy to make fun of or 50 shades darker because they're sexist exactly Uh, because because that's a movie which like first of all nobody's talked about it since it came out a year ago yeah so it's not even in the conversation it's not relevant so the only reason it's nominated is because it's a movie about sex for older women mm-hmm. which makes it a target
0: yes I mean I haven't seen it have you no I mean I listened to the Flophouse episode I saw on it. Funny I saw stuff. the
1: first Fifty Shades of Grey movie mm-hmm which is utterly mediocre, but not that bad.
0: And you didn't want to check out the one directed by the man who gave us The Corrupter and Glengarry Glen Ross?
1: Ooh, you're kind of selling me on (laughs) that now, I have
0: to say. I hear there's a giant Chronicles of Riddick poster at one point in the background. Yeah. And if there's anything that says Justin the Clue, it's the Chronicles of Riddick. Yeah. I just want to note one thing before we go, which is you asked me what the podcast has changed, like what subjects we approach. And somehow I completely blanked on the fact that I had no interest in Canadian cinema pretty much before we did our episode. What changed? Was it being a filmmaker? I think that what changed was reading the uh, book on the Genie Awards, which is uh, the Canadian Film Awards. are currently mm-hmm. uh, called the Canadian Screen Awards. And discovering that all these movies that were nominated, that won... No one knows about them, and they're not available. And there's something that just got me at that point, like a frustration. Mm. It's not like I believe that these movies are out there and they're just bad. It's that these movies exist... And nobody's watching or talking about them or caring about them.
1: Well, I was kind of frustrated when I saw that movie Loyalties Mm -hmm. at uh, the Lightbox a few weeks ago at just a free screening on Saturday afternoon. Because it's a really good movie by a female director. Mm -hmm. And and it's programmed at the Lightbox in this free slot as if it's homework. Mm. I feel like there's a way to get people interested in that movie.
0: There is. And recently Tiff did an event uh, because they're doing the Canadian Top Ten right now, which is the Top Ten Canadian Films that played at the TIFF film festival (laughs) that they were having a party where um, you could come and a bunch of people would edit Wikipedia pages for Canadian cinema. And so I saw this event come up and I went, man i wonder what kind of person would do that like are there other people like me that are interested in the history and why it doesn't exist i should go check this out so i wake up at 11 a.m on saturday morning whew, way too early and i <laughs> went down to the light box and i discovered who else is interested in this me it's me i was the first one there there was nobody else for another hour <laughs> Who came? Anyone we know? Uh, Nope. Only two other people showed up before I left, and they each went
1: to the other side of the room, sat down, and did their own thing. Well, thanks for going. I mean, I'm glad somebody's <laughs> out there, you know, fighting for uh, Canadian culture.
0: I just believe that there's this idea that, like, there are people fighting for Canadian culture or cinema like that, and I'm getting a little bit, I don't know, uh, frustrated that I, I don't know of them. Like, Steve Greystock, who works at TIFF... He was the Canadian cinema guy. But who are the other people right now who, in a time where film should be more available than they ever are, are just like, meh, people don't want to see these movies. Well, Justin,
1: the answer is clearly you. And yet, and yet, where are the you know, how come how come Cameron Bailey isn't knocking at your door? <laughs> That's I I'm fucking dead serious asking this.
0: And one other thing that we didn't talk about, because it's dumb, is resolutions in the new year. I mean, It's something that, you know, when you're a teenager, you're like, I don't need to make those because I'm not going to follow them. And it doesn't really matter. It's an empty gesture.
1: I have resolutions in my personal life, but I I don't want to talk about them here.
0: (laughs) But I was thinking about (laughs) the look on your face when you said that. (laughs) Just about the way that I take in cinema. I think that one resolution that I made is one, watch more Canadian cinema because it isn't homework and you should be experiencing these things so you can share them with other people or realize how important they are and discover more stuff. And number two is that you don't gotta be lazy. And that's something that I feel when you can do anything, right? I remember reading on the internet at one point a guy's like, I'm just gonna watch ninja films now. Cause why would I challenge myself? I'm just gonna watch the stuff that I like. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, you get bored by that. And like since January 1st, I've been watching a lot of films that I was kind of putting away and going, oh, man, maybe like on a rainy day when I'm in the right mood and kind of forcing myself to watch them." And man, are they enjoyable. Great stuff.
1: Well, I mean, I already watched that uh, Robin Williams movie, Man of the Year, for my other podcast. <laughs> so I think that's all my res- New Year's resolutions done.
0: <laughs> and that was like the art film. You're like, listen, <laughs> this is a medicine. Yeah. I'm going to enjoy this. Yeah.